Happy New Year and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz. Today I'm going to talk about Boston and its history of segregation. Stay tuned. So even though I grew up in Maine, I've always loved Boston. It's always been one of my favorite cities. And if I ever moved back to the U.S., I would probably move back there again just because I have so many friends and, and family there. So I initially moved there after college, uh, and I came from a really small town in Maine. So for me, Boston felt really diverse and really inclusive. But obviously, Boston, like many cities in the U.S., it has a history of segregation. So I wanted to look at it because I think a lot of times when we talk about segregation or racial inequality, we often think that a lot of that stuff happens in the South, but we sort of feel like the North is maybe a little bit better off or that we don't have some of those similar issues. But that's obviously not the case. So if you go all the way back in Massachusetts in the 1700s, Slavery was actually, it officially existed in Massachusetts until 1788. And that's when a state law banned slavery and slave trade in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But of course, institutional racial segregation continued to be an issue. In 1705, the Massachusetts colonial legislator actually enacted a law that prohibited marriage between Negroes and whites. And in 1786, the law was actually eliminated, but the ban against intermarriage actually changed a little bit, and it was extended to Indians, or Native Americans. So a lot of these state laws, as we have seen, I, I talked about it in a previous episode about interracial marriage, a lot of these laws were quite common in the, the 1800s, and it basically was, was a state law until about the 1840s. In addition to marriage, you also had a lot of racial segregation when it came to accommodations and also trains as well. Uh, a number of railroad lines in Massachusetts actually prohibited blacks from, from riding the trains, or they were allowed to, but they had to sit in separate cars, which were considered, of course, not as comfortable and not really quite up to safety standards at times. So uh, mass, so racial segregation in, in Massachusetts transportation was, was quite common as well in the 1700s and 1800s. Then, of course, public school segregation, and we're going to talk more about that later in the, in the episode, but public schools in Massachusetts, particularly communities like Salem or Nantucket or, or Boston Central, were really, really segregated in the 1840s and 50s. And all of Massachusetts public schools technically became fully integrated in the 1850s, 1855, because there's actually a law that was passed that prohibited any type of segregation based on color or religion. But a lot of that really didn't change. So even though it was legal, of course, that doesn't mean that people actually had to follow it. So Boston, you know, we know right now, currently it's home to about 700,000 people and it's spread over about 24 neighborhoods. But whether or not school segregation was was deemed illegal or even segregating based on neighborhoods, you know, saying, oh, you can't live here because you're black or you can't live here because you're Hispanic, whether or not those laws were eliminated obviously doesn't mean that that type of thing didn't continue to happen. So 
when looking at Boston now, as I said, it's spread over about 24 different neighborhoods. And demographically speaking, whites are still considered the majority at about 53%. African-Americans make up about a quarter of the population. Asians about 10% and other is about 7%. So certain areas, though, are known for having certain demographics. So statistically speaking, where are the African-Americans? Well, mainly the areas for for people that know Boston fairly well, the areas known as Dorchester, Roxbury, and Mattapan are predominantly African-American neighborhoods. While there has been some, of course, movement around, and certainly Black people and the Black population is not confined to those three areas, an estimated two-thirds of Boston's Black residents still live in these three neighborhoods. And if they don't live there... Well, where do they live? Well, not in the suburbs. So interesting enough, according to Boston Magazine, I read that of the 147 different municipalities that form the greater Boston area, 61 of those are at least 90% white, and some of them are actually even whiter. And that's, that's according to a 2017 study. So... Basically, that means places like Winchester, Hingham, who are areas that are not, of course, right near downtown Boston. They're, as I said, in the greater Boston area. Some of those areas, when they look to the population, there's less than 1% of non-white people living there. So that's a really interesting thing to look at. Well, Boston itself has certainly over the years become less divided by race. It's still nowhere near as integrated as it could be. In fact, Boston built a new neighborhood basically from scratch. It's called the Seaport. Really nice area. I've been there several times. Super pretty. It's near the water. Good restaurants, bars, but it is almost entirely white. And it's places like the Seaport. It's reasons like that that Boston actually ranks 15th for segregation when it comes to major U.S. cities. And in 2010, there is a so-called index of dissimilarity for racial distribution of, of black people and white people in Boston. And Boston scored 69. So what does that mean? Essentially, it means that 69% of Bostonians would have to move somewhere else within the city for it to have an even racial distribution of black and white people. Basically, to put that in context, any city with an index of over 60% is considered highly segregated. So you you get the idea, essentially, that Boston still has issues with segregation in the sense that most areas are still either predominantly white or predominantly black. Now, as part of Boston's racial reckoning in the wake of of George Floyd and, and a lot of the other other incidences that have gone on um, in 2020, a lot of activists are not only insisting on police reform, but also renewing demands to address the city's residential segregation. So home ownership is definitely one of the greatest drivers of wealth accumulation in this country, without a doubt. And it's always been one of the greatest, I would say, engines of inequality. So when we look at now what's considered kind of an infamous and kind of embarrassing statistic from the 2015 uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, there's this report that shows that the average white household's wealth in the greater Boston is 247000 
$500. And the average black household's wealth, not only is it a little bit less, it's a lot less. It's $8. So we definitely have a lot of things to point to. And part of that is housing. Because when you own property, you obviously have wealth accumulation. And a lot of that is passed down, of course, through generations and is passed down from family member to to family member. So housing is not, of course, everything. It's not the be all end all. We can't, you know, just wave a magic wand and say, okay, everybody gets a house and that's going to fix it. But that's definitely a little bit more that's certainly one of the the bigger issues and it's definitely something that's worth looking into. So Boston Magazine also brought up a really interesting historical incident. And so many years ago in 1843, there was a place called Holden Farm and it had a barn and entrance. It had apple and cherry trees, really nice. It was in a very, very nice area of Brooklyn. And in in that year, in 1843, the property's owner, uh, Thomas Aspinwall Davis, who was actually a, a jeweler, and he would later become the mayor of, of Boston, he divided his land into separate lots with a choice one that was obviously reserved for himself. It was really nice. It had, you know, Italian-esque style home. It had a lot of things on it. So one of, one of the, the areas was for him. So... Amid some of the regulations and rules that he put on it, he basically said things like, you know, how far back from the road the houses could be and all of that stuff. But another thing that he he mentioned was that this land could not be sold to any Negro or any native of Ireland. So no Irish people, no black people. And because this language was included in the deed, it applied to all subsequent sales and resales of the homes, not just to the original buyer. So around that time in the 1840s, Boston's black community had consisted of well, about 2,000 people, right? Which was about 3% of the city's population. And most of them lived in the area that's now considered the North End, um, Beacon Hill, uh, very close to downtown, what nowadays we would consider to be a really, really nice area of Boston. Towards the end of the century, the end of the 19th century, a lot of black families started to move into the South End, and they lived, you know, really side by side with a lot of white neighbors before taking up residence kind of more in, in Lower Roxbury. So with this, in this sense, black the black population was really growing and expanding, uh, but, of course, this place that was owned by the future mayor of Boston was not an option for black families at all. So it's it's not really known exactly how widespread these types of housing deeds and documents were in Massachusetts. But it certainly is something that popped up in, in a couple instances and not just in the instance of Holden Farm. So a lot of times in the 1800s, you would see deeds that basically said some type of segregation, like black people can't buy this property, you're Native Americans, or again, Irish people as well. And in the 1920s, a lot of this continued too. In fact, in 1926, 
the officers of the Boston Real Estate Exchange, they got their hands on a copy of the National Association of Real Estate Board's Code of Ethics. And in the document, kind of towards the end, there was something called Article 34. It had been added, I guess, a couple years prior. And it said, quote, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individuals whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood, end quote. So a lot of these things actually really, it was a big thing for a lot of the, the residents. And it actually, this exchange, people asked uh, for copies i said okay this is really interesting uh this is something that we need to think about so that actually became sort of a common common practice really uh in the 1800s and 1900s uh it was sort of okay to discriminate uh who you're going to sell land to based on on their race so really despite the fact that the Fair Housing Act was finally passed in 1968, which really the idea behind that was to eliminate housing discrimination. Public housing in the city remained highly segregated by race really until the end of the 1980s. So the segregation in federally funded housing projects wasn't limited to Boston proper. Uh, in fact, in the 1930s, there were about 100 families. Both of them were white and, and black, so it was not just black people, but they were evicted from this area of land, which would now be Kendall Square. So really not a bad area, you know, in Cambridge. Uh, but their homes were, were torn down and basically was to make room for um, new new housing. Uh, so a lot of a lot of this area that was torn down, uh, the new houses that were created, it were intended for uh, really all white residents. So a, a lot of that property was essentially uh, deemed as whites whites only. Uh, I, I guess also I should say too, a lot of the issues with housing is that a lot of times. There, there has been, there's continued to be this assumption that property value would diminish if black people moved into a neighborhood. And whether that's true or just, just, you know, belief, there was a lot of issues that kind of arose from that. So between in the U.S., between 1934 and 1962, $120 billion worth of FHA that would be the the Fair Housing Act, insured homes were built, and white people were the beneficiaries of more than 98% of them. And in Massachusetts alone, in that same time period, the FHA insured more than 68,000 loans, which were worth roughly $700 million. And that really contributed to an explosive population growth in the suburb. So a lot of the suburbs of Boston, like Sudbury, Dedham, uh, a lot of those areas, we we saw really a lot of of white people moving out there and buying homes. So you had the steady flow of white people leaving Boston for the suburbs. Um, some 13% of that population actually between 1950 and 1970, uh, which actually sort of fits in about right because that's around that time you had the black migration into Boston and into the cities. So during that time, there's this influx of black people moving to the city 
And probably that was one of the biggest internal migrations at the time because that really pushed Boston, like Boston proper's black population past the 100,000 mark. And that was at that time about 17% of the population. So that's really an interesting thing to, to look at. But then the issue is, of course, where where is everybody going to live? So a lot of the people, a lot of those people that were moving, they ended up sort of going into these overcrowded neighborhoods in the South End, uh, as well as uh, that's where we started seeing black people move out more to Dorchester and Roxbury. And a lot of banks just weren't lending for home improvements or purchase. So a lot of times the houses out there were were low cost uh, and they were falling down, falling apart as well. So there's a lot of issues then that sort of popped up from that. It, about around that time um, with the six, 60s and late 60s, 70s, uh, Boston banks became, began a program with City Hall to increase home ownership for African-Americans. And it was called the Boston Bank's Urban Renewal Group, the Beberg. It was actually a response to the assassination of MLK Jr. And the requirements of the Housing Act of 1968 basically, you know, basically essentially said you could not discriminate in making home mortgages available. So in theory, we might think, okay, this is a really good idea. This is great. Make it easier for people of color to get mortgages. But the reality is that the program actually was quite a bit of a disaster for these neighborhoods and it also actually affected a lot of Jewish people and Irish people and and also African Americans who already lived in some of those neighborhoods and part of the problem was something called blockbusting so blockbusting it's obviously not something that only happens in in Boston but it was something that happened a lot uh during the the 60s and 70s in Boston so blockbusting means the realtors would basically make up stories and they would go door to door to scare white homeowners into selling their houses then they would say things like oh look that black family they're moving in they have eight kids their eldest, you know, is, is getting out of prison soon. He served time for rape. Do you really want him living across the street from your daughter? Things like this. You know, a lot of these stories were fiction, but it, it worked because they scared some homeowners into selling, which snowballed when people saw their neighbors selling and they thought, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to sell as well. So Boston leaders, unfortunately, they failed to respond uh, the Mattapan organization, it was a local civic improvement group. They tried to oppose a lot of these policies by challenging realtors. They asked the banks to change the program. They asked a lot of political and Jewish community leaders for help. Uh, mayor White didn't respond. Uh, he was the, the mayor of uh, Boston at the time. He was kind of focused on running for governor in 1970. So they really didn't do that much. The city council passed a $25 fine for blockbusting, which really is not even a slap on the wrist. And the banks refused to reform the program. So it really did not go well. A lot of downtown uh, major Jewish institutional leaders who lived in the suburbs, they suggested that 
the thousands of, of working class Jews that were already living in, in Mattapan and Dorchester, they said, well, maybe you should, you should start thinking about moving. So it just caused a lot of disruption for people. Um, and by the time the Bieberg program ended in 1972, there wasn't really any official initiatives uh, keeping black people to these restricted zones of the city. Um, but there also really wasn't a lot of options for them as well. So really, there was just kind of the idea of like where black people should live, even if they were not legally required to live in a certain area. But the area's black population, you know, has continued to face a lot of mortgage discrimination, so even into the 90s and, and current day. So studies from the, the 1980s through, you know, 21st century really consistently show that black people get fewer mortgages than white people with equal income, which means that they continue to lose out on the opportunity to buy homes, which also means building equity and that means accumulating wealth. So, in fact, the, the only time since Bieberg that black people finally became the recipients of mortgages at an unprecedented rate was actually in the late 90s and late 1990s and early 2000s, during which time there was, they were disproportionately targeted for subprime mortgage loans, even when they qualified for just conventional ones. So, as a result, the fallout from a lot of these subprime crisis loans was felt pretty strongly in Boston's black communities. Uh, and you can see that in the, the foreclosure rate. So in looking into it, I found that uh, there were over 4,000 foreclosures in Boston between 2006 and 2011. And more than 80% took place in Boston's historically black neighborhoods. So again, we're talking Dorchester, Roxbury, etc. So Clearly, there's a trend, and basically I say all this to say that a lot of segregation is is not just, it's not just small things, it's something that really dates back to centuries and, and decades of housing discrimination, housing issues, as, as well as many other things. So my own personal experiences with Boston, uh, as I said, I, I, I moved to Boston after I graduated from the University of Maine in 2010. And I moved to an area that's Alston, which is a lot of young people, a lot of college students because it's close to BU, BC, and just a lot of, of local, uh, local colleges and universities. Uh, after I lived in Austin, I moved to Somerville, and then I, I ended up in, in Roxbury. And my experiences, you know, I definitely have noticed uh, some differences in the areas, and I have noticed a fair share of, uh, I, I can't necessarily say housing discrimination, but I have definitely noticed a difference in, in some of the neighborhoods. So a neighborhood like Austin, as I said, it was a lot of young people, a lot of college people. Um, but then when you have neighborhoods like Somerville, you know, it's more working class. It wasn't necessarily all black or all white. It was a lot of working class people. You had Hispanic people, some black people, uh, etc. And then moving to Roxbury. Roxbury, as I said, is, is early in the, the episode, is one of those neighborhoods that is considered predominantly a neighborhood of color. But obviously with gentrification, you also saw a lot of you know, non 
black people, non-people of color moving in. You saw a lot of stores and restaurants, uh, yoga studios pop up, uh, things like that. So definitely there was kind of a mix, a mix of everything. And you could definitely feel, as I said, gentrification happening. I, I also spent some time in East Boston, which is a predominantly Latino neighborhood. So there's a lot of immigrants uh, from Colombia, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, really just, as I said, a lot of Latin, Latin American um, immigrants. And I, I spent time there because I was working at a charter school at the time. And much like the, the neighborhood, uh, most of the students were... I would say uh, Latino, and as well as some some African American, and there were about maybe one percent white students. Uh, but obviously, as is often the case, the majority of the teachers were white. So uh, I mean, that's you know that's a, a an interesting thing, of course, to always look at, and that's something that you know we can always talk about when we're talking about education and racism and, and whatnot. But uh, mainly I, I bring this up and I point this out to say that, you know, a lot of times people will come into these neighborhoods, uh, these, these neighborhoods that are, you know, neighborhoods of color to work or whatever, but uh, there's still kind of this fear of like, I don't, you know, I don't want to live here. I don't think it's safe to live there. And it's not until you, you start to see basically you start to see people uh feeling like they can't afford other parts of the city and then you know then that's when you start to have kind of more gentrification happen and it's like okay I guess I can move into Roxbury I guess I can move into East Boston uh and that type of thing so it's just an interesting it's an interesting place I mean I think you see that in of course a lot of cities where yeah, particularly I'm thinking the Bay Area. I lived in the Bay Area for two years and Oakland, you know, a lot of times Oakland had that reputation of, oh, it's not safe, it's dangerous. There's a lot of people of color, but obviously white people start to sort of get priced out of areas like San Francisco. And so you start to see an influx of, of gentrification happening. So uh, yeah, I mean, basically kind of swinging back around to, to Boston and segregation though. Uh, another part of Boston segregation that's really important is education. And the desegregation of Boston public schools was really from about 1974 to 1988. And it was a period in which the Boston public schools were under court control to basically desegregate through a system of busing students. The call for desegregation in the first years of, a, of its implementation led to a series of, of racial protests or riots. There was a lot of national tension, particularly at the beginning in the 70s. And in response to Massachusetts legislators' enactment of the 1965 Racial Imbalance Act, basically they were forced to desegregate the schools and it took a long time it took over a decade but it really influenced boston politics and it really contributed to the demographic shifts of of boston school age population and also it also was partially responsible for the white flight to the suburbs as well so there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at uh the first is the racial imbalance act of 1965 it's the legislation that was passed by the massachusetts general court 
which made segregation of public schools illegal in Massachusetts. And the law was the first of its kind in the U.S., and it stated that racial imbalance shall be deemed to exist when the percentage of non-white students in any public school is in excess of 50% of the total number of students in such school. So these racially imbalanced schools were required to desegregate according to law, or they could actually risk losing their state educational funding. So this was a big thing, really. And obviously, it's something that in any state, in any city, it takes time and it takes a lot of work. So a lot of issues sort of happened in the 60s that led to really the 70s um, being a big big desegregation uh, time in Boston. So in 1972, for example, the NAACP filed a class action lawsuit, Morgan v. Hennington with with Tallulah Morgan as the main plaintiff. And it was against the Boston School Committee on behalf of 14 parents and, and 44 kids alleging segregation in the public schools in Boston. And two years later, the Judge Garrity of the, of the U.S. District Court uh, in Massachusetts found a reoccurring pattern of racial discrimination in the public schools. So his ruling basically found that schools were unconstitutionally segregated and that required the implementation of a state's racial imbalance act that would require any Boston school, as I said, with student enrollment that was more than 50% non-white to be balanced according to race. So the question is, though, how do you do that? So Garrity used a busing plan that was developed by the Massachusetts State Board of Education. And with Garrity's ruling, which was upheld on appeal actually by the U.S. Court of Appeals, it required students, required school children to be brought to different schools to essentially end segregation. And this busing plan affected the whole city. It really affected of course, students and children who went to to public schools. Uh, So those were really essentially affected students that were mainly from uh, Irish neighborhoods like West Roxbury, Rosendale, Hyde Park, Charleston, South Boston. And it also affected Italian American neighborhoods as well, which would be like the North End. And I would say also probably it affected most of the neighborhoods uh, that were predominantly black, like Roxbury, Mattapan, etc. So, and of course, Dorchester. So the integration plan really was heavily criticized by some of Boston's residents. Of the 100,000 people, students that were enrolled in Boston School District, attendance actually fell during those years, it fell to about 60,000. And a lot of parents complained, they disagreed as well. They they formed something called ROAR, which is Restore Our Alienated Rights. It was against uh, desegregation, they were against busing. And so there's a lot of conflict that, that went on as well. And busing was something that, as I said, a lot of people disagreed with it because they not only part of it was they didn't want their white students to go to school with black kids but they also didn't like the idea of having to change schools or having their kids go to schools that didn't maybe receive funding as much funding as as some of the other schools so 
This was something that went on for a while. In July of 1999, the Boston School Committee actually voted to drop racial makeup guidelines from its assignment plan for the entire system. And the busing system, though, technically still continued. It was still in existence until 2013. And then the busing system was actually replaced by... So technically it still exists, but it's extremely dramatically reduced. So it's not nearly the way that it was back in back in the 70s. So really, I, I guess to sum it all up, there's really no shortage of plans or policy proposals that could help Boston and help its suburbs become less segregated. But to turn kind of some of these ideas or or plans into lasting change, I think we need something more. I think there needs to be a commitment to take on this debt to our Black community in Boston and to really invest in reversing the harm of decades of housing discrimination and school issues. And I think when we talk about integration, it's important not to become kind of enamored with shortcuts or not to lose sight of the fact that in- integration is not, as as a lot of people kind of say, integration is not kind of like a pathway to social justice. I think it's, it's a result of social justice, right? And I think it's important to think about plans or think about ways to help these communities and think about how we can implement these plans. So it's definitely a work in progress. Okay, it's time for that part of the show. It's time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so I took off a little bit of time for the holidays, so that's why this is the the first episode in a couple weeks, and I've decided also to do uh, an episode once every other week, um, just to kind of spread it out a little bit, just to give me more time to plan, prepare, etc. So yes, if you don't see episodes dropping on a weekly basis, that is why. So as I was saying, a lot has happened since we were last on the air, and there's been a lot of different things to tackle. So uh, there's I've gotten a lot of comments and questions and things from friends, uh, everything from the incident with the, the 22-year-old girl in New York accusing the 14-year-old uh, African-American teenager of stealing her phone, that happened, of course, the whole incident with uh, Alec Baldwin's wife, uh, basically pretending that she was Spanish and uh, doing a little bit of cultural appropriation. Uh, so yeah, we've had a lot of a lot of good things kind of close out twenty twenty and a lot of interesting stories to start this new year, but. I, I thought the most pressing and the most uh, story that, that's, you know, really talked about right now is obviously what happened last week in our nation's capital. And I say our, our nation not being Washington, D.C. So uh, I, I happen to be, I, I try sometimes to stay off of Facebook because there's always a lot of back and forth that goes on, particularly after something has happened like this. But I I did happen to be on Facebook, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it. And a former classmate from college was posting something and he asked the question, uh, what's the difference between Black Lives Matter protesters and these protesters that stormed the Capitol? 
I guess he he lived in Minnesota last year and he saw a lot of things that went down over the summer with the George Floyd protests. And he was also very vocal about that as well. He didn't support that. He thought it was just a bunch of rioting. So I suppose it's a question that some people, some white people might also be having. So, okay, let's let's look at it. And this is, of course, always just from my own opinion. I think that one thing is a big difference is that I think most of us can agree that if those people had been black, let's just say it was a Black Lives Matter uh, rally, protest, etc., and they decided to storm the Capitol, the majority of those people would have been shot or they would have been arrested. There's no way that they would have been able to get all the way in there and start looting and taking things and posing for pictures and sitting at, at, at Congress people's desks. That that just wouldn't have happened. And obviously we saw from a lot of pictures the ease in which the police just sort of, not all of them, but a lot of them opened the doors and just let the people come in and there really weren't any arrests that were happening, though I know now that the FBI are, are looking for a lot of the people involved. So I, I think that's a big, big point. And I think another thing that I want to say is that these people are not protesters. You know, Black Lives Matter is a movement. There are protesters because a lot of people of color are tired of being killed for doing basic things like sleeping or running or uh, allegedly cashing a a check that that was fraudulent. A lot of people are just tired, right? But these people aren't protesters. These are people that are upset because they didn't get their way, because the election didn't go the way that they wanted. And there's nothing... It, it's not a protest. It's it's a riot. They're rioters and really, in my opinion, they're domestic terrorists because they're uh, waving the Confederate flag. They're putting up Trump's flag in, in place of the U.S. flag. They're destroying federal property. All of that stuff is that is not protesting. It's it's terrorism. You know, it's it's pure terrorism. So I think that's another important point to make as well. And for people that say, "Oh, well, Black Lives Matter is a it's a violent group," no, the the reality is that all the protests that happened in twenty twenty, it's true. Yes, that some of them did get out of hand, but. They they calculated that roughly it was like 2 or 3% of the protests. And of course, those are always the ones that are going to be on the front page of newspapers, etc. The majority of the people were really quiet. They were really peaceful. Uh, I know I, I took part in a couple of protests in, here in Spain, and none of them at all got violent. Everything was really, really quiet and really peaceful. So really, it's it's not a fair comparison and it's it's not even it's just not even the same as completely uh you know apples and oranges and i think we you know i think back to because obviously i i love football and i've talked about this in the past before but i think back to Colin Kaepernick and people really really lost their minds with him taking a knee during the anthem they said he was incredibly un-american that he should be kicked out of this country he should be he was getting death threats you know people were just saying no that's not the way to protest don't do this don't do this don't do that but you know that's starting to look kind of like a good way to protest i mean you know that's <laughs> there's nothing wrong with taking a knee you know that's I, that's fine if these people if these rioters if they wanted to protest the election of course it's in their their right to do that uh they could take a knee or <laughs> do whatever they want but 
destroying federal property and rushing into the Capitol and, and waving their guns and Confederate flags is not it's not the way to do it. So, yeah, as I said, there's a lot of a lot of things that went down uh, the past couple of weeks, a lot of interesting things to look at and talk about. But I thought maybe that was the most most pressing thing uh, that obviously happened in the past couple of weeks. And that's how we aren't going to see more of that type of of behavior go on because I have to definitely say for me as an American, even though of course I live overseas, I still consider myself an American and it's just so disappointing and frustrating and hard, particularly as a person of color, to see that type of behavior and see kind of a lack of accountability for people that do that type of stuff. And just knowing that, you know, if I did that or if if other people that looked like me tried to do that type of stuff, that we more off more likely than not we wouldn't be alive to to post photos of it on Facebook. So yeah, I think there's just a lot obviously that's going on these days and I think that's why we continue to of course uh protest and we continue to try and, and make a difference and we continue to to hope for the the best. So that is my my thoughts about it. That's sort of my my two cents. So in ending this episode I would like to use a quote from the always relevant Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, I I feel like to accept injustice or segregation passively is to say to the oppressor that his actions are morally right. And I, I think one of the great things about this quote is obviously that, as I said, it's always relevant. I think a lot of his, his writings and a lot of his speeches are always relevant. But I think that we're definitely getting to the point where if you're silent about something, you're definitely complacent. So I think it's sort of that time where, you know, everybody needs to stand up and needs to to stand up for what's right and, and really um, make sure they're doing their part to, to make a difference, to make a positive difference. So that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next week.